Hello, hello, and welcome to Built on Hope, a podcast dedicated to competitive Imperial Assault. I am your host, Isaac. Yes, I am back. I've been gone for quite a while. And in this episode, we are once again coming to you with another knowledge and defense segment. And David, how are you? Hey, Isaac. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. So for listeners, you know, just tuning in, I guess we've been away for a little bit, mainly because we were live streaming and casting the Home Worlds tournament that Noah ran on Vassal, and also the IACP Vassal tournament as well. So that that was, you know, us away for a while. But if you've been participating or watching those streams, you've probably heard a lot of us uh, during this time, anyways. Exactly. And on that note, congratulations to Kyle Bottom for taking home the win on the IACP tournament. I'm not quite sure exactly who won the Home Worlds one. Do you guys remember? Lucas. Um, Right, Lucas. Uh, yes, that's the one. Lucas. Congratulations to Lucas, which I believe was a Han Chewy list. So kudos for that. And speaking of that wonderful voice, hello, Jessica. Hi, everyone. This is Jessica with some news for you. First off, IACP news. We're in season three and changes version 3.2 now live. Please make sure to fill in the playtest survey so that you can get your opinions into the steering committee and help them to design new things in the future, including season four stuff and beyond. Now, season three officially ends May 29th. And don't forget that at the end to submit stuff for the community vote in order for stuff to become IACP approved. Now, before the end of Season 3, you still have some opportunities to play the Season 3 stuff. So, there is a Season 3 casual playtest event. Monday, the 4th of May, is the start, and it lasts for three weeks. So, this one is a slightly shorter playtest event, so if you can't commit to the longer five- or six-week events, this one might be for you, so it's three weeks starting Monday, the 4th of May. And I'll put the sign-up in the uh, show notes. All right, also, there's going to be a Season 3 Celebration Tournament, which is going to be on the more competitive side. So if you want a little bit more competitive event, that's for you. There is no cost for entry. And that's going to be Saturday, May 16th, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. I think that's what EDT stands for. 9 a.m. EDT. And it's going to be uh, at least three rounds of Swiss. And the cut will be in following weeks to be organized with whoever makes it. So that's a one-day event, Season 3 Celebration Tournament. And obviously both of these events will be over Vassal. Uh, So uh, don't forget to sign up now if you're interested in either of those events. Again, I'll put the sign-up links in the show notes. Alright, speaking of Vassal, uh, Trevor has a new version. So Vassal, the newest version, is version 3.2. And I'll put the link to downloading that in the show notes as well. Also, Trevice has some new stuff for us as well. So the IA Builder that he's made is now on version 1.0.18. And it's been updated with season 3 for IACP stuff. And also, um, he's made a tabletop simulator mod for Imperial Assault as well, if you want to check that out. 
Now, in terms of Built on Hope news, the Built on Hope crew, you probably have heard us in some crossovers. We are teaming up with at TV Boy Noah of IA Command on YouTube to do some live streaming of events and things like that. So you might have heard David and I and Isaac on some live stream doing some commentary and do pardon us when we do make some mistakes sometimes, but you can't get away from us. We're everywhere now. So um, look forward to seeing us doing some more crossovers and teaming up with Noah, bringing you more live streaming commentary for events coming up. And also, Tom Parrish is going to be joining us for the first time on the podcast today. He's joining the Built on Hope crew. So give him a warm welcome. All right, that's all I have for news, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Indeed, indeed. And speaking of the man himself, this is no stranger to Imperial Assault, and he has been part of the UK community for, well, definitely as long as I've been playing. It's a pleasure to bring on Tom Parrish. Hi, guys. How's it going? Not too bad. How about you, Tom? Yeah, living the, the coronavirus life. It's great. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so for anyone who isn't familiar with you, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. So, yeah, my name's Tom Parrish. I've been playing Imperial Assault. Uh, I think my first tournament was when Nilvanian Warzone was still in rotation. I remember that quite vividly. I played campaign with some friends of mine. Uh, we played for a little while. That was all good stuff. And then uh, I got a new job. Ended up working for a company with another name in the UK, kind of UIA scene. It's Ollie Dewhurst. We worked together for a little while. Found out that we were both nerds. And uh, we started doing tournaments together. Marvellous. So what was your first tournament that you attended? It was a store championships. I buy war games in Woking, which sadly no longer exists. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a useful thing for this particular discussion of the idea of the meta. So I remember taking General Vice and uh, three different probe droids to my first tournament. Probe droids? Because Nilvani Warzone had one of its missions where you could pick up uh, tokens. Right. Take, you had to take them to, to a specific location that gave you nine points. And if you got vice, you had the ability to make other things do moves. Mm. Other. Yes. And so the, the droids, could you could run them up as fast as you could around the side, pick up the droids, and then have vice run them back again. Ah. Very nice. So it was... It was, well, unfortunately, it's not a great tactic when you've got three different maps and six different missions. Yeah. <laughs> it was very good at that mission. I mean, the Agnots were great, despite being the best on one mission, so you never know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to have you on, and I'm very excited for this episode, because I just read through the excerpt, and it sounds amazing. So I think everyone here is in for an absolute treat. So, David and Tom, do you two want to kick it off with the episode? Yes, thank you. All right, so today we are doing another knowledge and defense segment, um, and it's actually about the meta and you know what what is a meta and how how that affects the game that we play. So it's it's actually not quite so simple. Um, we can start out by defining the term meta. I know a lot of people have probably heard it thrown around the tournament scene, and I, I think everyone has some idea what it means or internally it, it already means something to you but we can just clarify that a little bit and and get all our brains thinking so it turns out there are actually several meanings to meta 
And we can separate the discussion into kind of two parts, right? The first one is where meta actually stands for an acronym and it, it is the most effective tactics available. So kind of the, the best thing you can do to win the game. But the, the other context in which people use the term meta a lot is metagaming, which is a game about the game that kind of transcends the game itself, you know? So how, how do you play with respect to what other lists you're expecting people to bring? You know, what do you expect people to be doing during the game? And these, these, are, these are two actually very different concepts, and both of them drive what lists are competitive, and, and both of them will have a big effect on whether or not somebody has fun playing a particular list or a particular strategy. Coming off of what you just said about metagaming, I think the example that we thought of that best kind of sums up the idea of metagaming, at least in a way that you can easily visualize, is the idea of tic-tac-toe or noughts and crosses depending on where you grew up and what you played. A three, three by three grid, and each player takes it in turns to put a zero or a cross in a box. The idea of trying to get a row of three. So it turns out that because this is such a simple concept and a simple game, there is, there's a way of playing noughts and crosses that is kind of the perfect version of that game. And if you play this certain set of steps, you will either always draw or win, depending on what your opponent does. There is no way to lose if you understand the meta game of tic-tac-toe and you're capable of playing it. It basically is dependent only on your opponent's choices. So then I think this then goes back to what you said earlier about how then thinking about this is really useful in thinking about what you find fun. Because there are certain strategies, like for example, with the tic-tac-toe, where you just follow basically a list of steps. But is that fun for you to just win the game? Is it fun for you to just follow a formulaic set of steps? Or do you like doing, like discovering new ways of doing things? So I think that's an interesting discussion. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of go all the way back to the classic war games quote where the only way to win is not to play, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I, I think the the lines between the two definitions of metagaming are often blurred when we talk about gaming. Yeah. So it's it it is a quite complex interaction that we have. And I think it's important to think about it so you can you can decide, you know, how you want to play with respect to the meta. Precisely. And what I also really love about the two different versions or definitions of, of more or less the same word with meta and metagaming is that one without the other will be significantly less powerful because if you consider if you're playing if you're playing the meta game you're you're playing at a way higher level you're playing in a way which few others can but you're not playing the most effective tactics available which is obviously the acronym meta then is that as effective as if you were to both metagame and you're the most effective tactics available because it is obviously possible to metagame without your moves needing to be the most effective. There's always a way to play at a higher level and set up and set up something in the long term, which actually might not be the most effective for you short term. Well, I, I think I think also the the thing is your your goal often in competitive imperial assault is to win a big event, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. the reality is that our kind of communities are are quite localized, they're quite diverse, and the most effective tactics available in the entire game of Imperial Assault 
are often not how you can win all your games on the day at a specific big event, right? Oh, interesting. So we'll we'll get into this a a bit later, I think. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. (laughs) But we can can go back and start discussing from the, the simplest kind of concept of this this idea of the most effective tactics available and that's just simply better units right Mm. so the this concept is really old it came from the 1960s by nigel howard who's an english scholar and he talked about strategic games of war and how players try to kind of achieve their goals and objectives by using the best options available to them and by by options, he often talked about things like arms races, where countries try to have better and better weapons to outdo their opponents. And in Imperial Assault over the years, we've always had this sort of power creep, right? You, you had what the baseline stats were, and that almost defined the meta. You know, if stormtroopers were the strongest uh, health and damage per points, then they were the most effective tactics available. And then later on, it became weakways or whatever. So I think we, we can first, you know, have a have a chat about this sort of unit power creep and how it affects Imperial Assaults. Now, I think the most effective tactics available definition is much simpler to understand, especially like you said, in the context of just basic units. So pure stats, health per cost, Uh, that kind of thing, abilities, special abilities that units have. But I think the metagaming, that game about the game part, is more more difficult to pin down in the context of what you would see. Like, how how would you define that in terms of Imperial Assault? Like, if you were a metagamer, what kind of things would you be doing? So I think when you're talking about metagaming in that wider context, like you spoke about earlier with the tournaments, part of the metagame is understanding what other people are going to bring. Mm, yeah. And it's the metagame is that, that kind of that, the bit, you've got the core idea, the core, the rules that sit within the rules reference guide of Imperial Assault. That's how you play the game. But what your opponent is going to bring to the table, that's a different level of the game. That's mm. something else that's happening. And the meta can, you know, it includes that within it as well. And so that's where you get the difference, the kind of the disconnect between the basic rules and how you would play the game and then kind of the wider meta. Okay, so metagaming, in my mind then, is if you do things like research what type of lists are uh, most commonly taken to tournaments and then coming up with strategies to beat those specific lists. Does that seem right? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great, great example. Um, so we we have thought a little bit about how there are actually the the two two levels of this type of metagaming. So you you have decisions to make when you're designing your lists, right? And then you also have decisions to make while you're in the game. So when you're designing your list, the idea is to bring something to a tournament that will get you the most number of wins, right? So you have a, I don't know, I guess a an expected win rate against most of the other list archetypes. For example, if you play something like an IG list, you might think that you will do well against Vader lists and you will do poorly against um, Lothcat lists. 
So if you were to bring that list, then you should hope at your event there will be a lot more Vader players than Lothcat players. Otherwise, you've you've sort of chosen the the wrong meta as it is. Mm-hmm. So what other kinds of things would constitute metagaming? What about during a game itself? So let's say you're in the middle of a game. What kind of things would count as metagaming? That's a good question. <laughs> would it be things like moves that you would make that you're trying to bait out certain moves that you know are common or something like that, maybe? Yeah, so I mean, kind of an example that comes to mind in my head is that in my opinion there's always been two types of ways that you can perform every single action it could either be a long-term move or it could be a short-term move and the extent to which one of those will be the most effective will differ from game to game depending on the exact board state which is what separates the you know the highest tiers of competitive play such as daniel taylor from from the rest which is you know, just just knowing always what is the best decision to do. Such as, for example, there may be some games where IG is in one is in one part of the board where he is at most threatening my support units. And maybe you have two choices here. You could do: you can move all of your fighters towards that towards that area of the board to defend against IG IG and stop him, or to reduce the risk of him dive bombing in because he might die. Or maybe you capitalize on that. You do a long term decision instead. Maybe you circle around the board. Maybe if you've got rangers or something, or if you've got lothcats, maybe on a heavy objective mission, you circle around. You do something which your opponent might might at first think, well, that was silly. Why would you do that? Then mm-hmm. it turns out in the long run, that actually secures your win of the game because you did something unusual, which your opponent did not expect, which sets you up in a way much better than any regular move could. So that's kind of how I view, uh, how I view metagaming. It's, it's all about taking the actions that your opponent will never see coming, but are still correct. You're not, just, you're not just being a complete joker and just making random stupid moves, you know? Right. I think also metagaming kind of within the game definitely falls within how command cards work because yes. command cards are hidden from you, or at least your opponent's command cards are hidden from you, as well as kind of your, your, what's still to, to be drawn from your deck. The meta is kind of looking at your opponent's list and being able to kind of go, right, well, I have an idea of what they're going to have in their command deck. So this this next play that I'm about to make, I know it can be countered by this and this. Say you're thinking, okay, I'm sitting on a handful of cards that are going to make this attack really strong, but I'm going to attack a smuggler. So I know my opponent has the possibility of having on the lamb in their deck. And because on the lamb is a meta card, it's the strongest card, it's the most effective tactics available for a smuggler to have, it is almost certain that my opponent is going to have it mm-hmm. in their deck somewhere. So I now have to plan my game around the idea of the meta that already exists for On the Lamb being a key, car- a key component of a smuggler list. So now if you are just a, you know, run-of-the-mill Imperial Assault player, how can we then use these ideas and incorporate it into our thought process for how we approach games? What's your thoughts on that? How Now that we kind of have a definition and we've thought about this, what what would you kind of advise for people that are sitting down to a game? So I actually have an example which springs to mind immediately from a tournament a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. But I was playing against a good friend of mine, Luke Sykes. And I think it was the top four cover something of a regional. And when it comes to the late game, the sm- it's the smallest actions possible which are going to really dictate the full extent of the game or how it ends up. 
So what I did in this situation was that I had a ranger, and I was going to try and kill his weak way. I'm not, I wasn't sure if I could one-shot his weak way, and I had two cards in my hand. I had um, Element of Surprise, and I had Toxic Dart, two zero-cost cards. Now, there's really no point in the Toxic Darting the weak way, you would think, because, you know, he's just going to take the Strainer's card because it's late game, and the weaken is really only going to matter one in six tries. And is it really worth it, you know, to use the card for probably no effect? But then when you think about it, if it's late game, your opponent is very likely going to be thinking about, okay, well, I need to use negation for something. So what can I use negation on? And very often, I've seen some players, they will capitalize with negation late game as soon as they can, even if it's the, not their most effective use possible. So what I did in that, in that situation is that I was outside a line of sight with my ranger from the weak way. I moved up to the weak way so it could see me. I played Toxic Dart number because I needed to. He negated it, as I thought he might have, and then I moved back, and then I played element. And because of the timing of those things, mm. there was no need for him to play negation on my Toxic Dart, but there was no need for me to play Toxic Dart either. So it's just, so I suppose in short summary, see what you can draw out of your opponent. Do you have spy cards? Can you maybe sacrifice, like one of my favorite things that I've seen being done is putting a Jawa or a Smuggler in a spot which is just annoying enough to maybe make your opponent overexpose. And if they do, maybe you have some a surprise up your sleeve which you could capitalize on that. So I've, I think for me, bluffing is a huge part of the metagame. Mm -hmm. So that's my five pence. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example of how you can use in-depth game knowledge in order to predict what your opponent might have uh, based based on what is the most effective thing for them to have, right? Uh, I think for new players, this can be quite quite daunting, yeah. I guess, because there, there's this other concept called burden of knowledge, which we probably will not make its own episode because it's quite simple. Basically, burden of knowledge is related to how much stuff you've got to cram into your brain in order to effectively play the game. And you you do gain a lot from memorizing everything in Imperial Assault. I think if, if your goal is to be a regional national champion or whatever, this is unavoidable, right? But one of the things I really liked about Imperial Assault when I started playing was that the game itself, sort of ignoring the memorization of, of command cards and all of the tiny tricks that people can use, is actually fairly simple. You've got your move speeds, you've got the two actions. Most of the units behave similarly. And I think what newer players can pick up on in terms of how to use meta, increasing their enjoyment of the game, is not the, the nuanced effects like this, but knowing just how lists want to operate as a whole during the game. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you see a list that's built to kill everything, then you know that the most effective tactics available to that list during the game is to kill everything of yours, right? Right. So then this this almost comes back to one of our other concepts that we introduced in a previous episode. You know, who's who's the beatdown or who who has kind of inevitability in the match. So you you need to figure out if you can beat them at their most effective tactics or if you need to do something completely different. So if you're also running a killy list, 
but you immediately think that their killy list kills better than yours, your most effective tactics, despite what your list was built to do, may suddenly be something else. It may be running objectives, or it, it may be kind of drawing the game out until you have a chance to take out a key piece, uh, something like this. So I think that's a really interesting point, that the idea that most effective tactics is not a static concept. It actually does vary depending on, obviously, what list you're playing, number one. Number two, what list your opponent is playing. And number three, the map, right? That has a huge effect on what's going to be most effective. And even during the game, in different points of the game, early game, mid game, late game, whether or not you're ahead, whether or not you're behind, the, the most effective tactics will then vary for those situations as well, right? And I think that's really important in Imperial Assault, particularly, because unlike something like chess, where you have a single objective, you know, kill kill your opponent's king, right? Get put them in checkmate. That's kind of your only your only way to win the game, right? In Imperial Assault, getting to forty while well, getting to forty points is your only objective. Your ways of achieving that are incredibly varied. Mm-hmm. I think this is amazing about Imperial Assault. I think that's one of the best features of the game. As we saw relatively recently, kind of whenever it was six months ago, when that the Jawa list, which consisted of all six Jawas that you can take suddenly won a tournament, won a big tournament, and it became obvious that their, their, their small effect that sits within their card, which is gain a VP plus their specialized command card, which allows them to gain additional VP, meant that a completely new kind of version of getting to 40 points or as many points as you needed suddenly was available. But it had been there for ages. Mm-hmm. And you saw the exact same thing with David and the Lothcats. Now, what I am thinking now then, again, if we're thinking about a standard Imperial Assault player, how do you go about identifying what is the meta? What is the most effective tactics available to you or just available widely in the game period? I'm guessing this is where we pitch your, your the live stream that you guys hosted. <laughs> yes, of course. Come, come watch the stream and... Uh... Listen, listen to the podcasts and you will see what is what is strong, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all about practice, isn't it? It's, it's all about how, how many games you can get in against how many different opponents playing different lists. Re- the reality of metagaming, like Isaac said earlier about kind of the bar which metagaming becomes kind of important to how you, how you play the game and how you approach tournaments and things. The, the, the thing that puts probably metagamers above kind of more casual players is the amount of games they're playing, the amount of practice they're getting. Yeah. The meta only becomes apparent as you play games, as you iterate and have different experiences and see different things happening. So the meta game, it's not, it's very rarely kind of immediately self-evident. The, the example I think of maybe is when Weekways first came out, people were looking at them and thinking, what what's special here? There's nothing, there's nothing here that they do that, you know, other figures don't do better. But through iterations of people playing and trying and, you know, this, and maybe this, maybe this, suddenly it became clear that their re-roll ability is key mm. and is huge in dealing with white dice figures because that ability to turn the 1 in 6 of a dodge to a 1 in 36 of a dodge can be massive. Absolutely. How does a game, like an overarching game meta, set itself up? How does it get established? And what kind of things do you think cause a meta to evolve over time? I mean, I, I think 
the development of an initial meta often comes from high-profile players. Yeah. So if if a bunch of new things are released and there are big tournaments with previous big tournament winners and they they enjoy playing some things, a lot of other people will will look to see what they've done and kind of test those units out, right? Mm-hmm. And that that means that a lot of things will be overlooked just because they're not popular within certain playgroups or because of certain people not playing them. And it's especially in a game where, you know, we don't have millions and millions of players, it can be hard to cover the full uh, range of all lists available. Right. So it it's, takes longer for a real solid meta to develop. And during that time is actually one of the, the funnest times to be playing a competitive game, where some people think they know what the best thing is, but you may disagree. I think this is also why uh, the testing league for IACP is so satisfying for a lot of players because of this big variability in the meta. There isn't an established one. It's evolving quickly. So I think that is a a big draw for a lot of players. And the thing about metas, or one of the things I think is interesting about metas is that they're very definitely regional and how that then like kind of if you have a regional meta develop in a certain place, so say, you know, North America or Europe, who have seen very different metas evolving when new products have come out, mm-hmm. how that then comes together when we get to a tournament like Worlds, where you've got different local metas clashing. Yeah. Kind of, it almost gets to a point where you're trying to find out the true meta at that point. But even that's complicated because one of the things that skews metas is, like David said, you know, someone high profile wins with a list well then at the next tournament that list represents a third of the lists well if it represents a third of the lists it's got a much better chance of winning than a maybe a better list that only one person has brought to that tournament so in that way metas can be Mm self-reinforcing exactly actually they can they can stifle creativity in in some ways although you know i'm sure there's myself certainly included enjoy the challenge of trying to break a meta yes so once one once one has formed that's kind of that's my favorite place to be in because i'm like right it's time to break that please mm-hmm. how am i going to do it exactly and that's one of the things which is so fun about metas is that a lot of the time just like you said there are times when metas will just fall into an endless spiral of the same thing over and over and over again and you fall into a rut which is very difficult to escape from unless you have a very quick uh, release schedule, which we never really had. But um, what I also think is interesting about metas is that metas can be self-evolving. They can be self-reinforcing, but also self-evolving. Because very often you'll have something which is which everyone thinks is the best. And then something else, then someone figures out a way to break the best. But then if everyone breaks the best, then and everyone takes that list, what if that one actually isn't the best in the overall meta? Which is why I, I will say, hands down, with no hesitation, that the absolute best meta we had was in 2018, when Vader Jets was viable, IG was viable, Weakways were viable, Riot Swarm was viable, Han Rangers was viable, Ranger Swarm was viable. There were so many viable options out there, and um, but almost everything was a rock-paper-scissors match. You would mm. have Rangers are, bit, are amazing against one particular figure, and then that figure is amazing against someone else. Vader is amazing against, say, Rangers, but he struggles against IG. So I see it anyway. And it's so interesting how metas can both be self-reinforcing and self-evolving. How with very little work from a company, a very limited range of product can, it really can 
stretch out for a long time if the right players discover the right combo at the right time. And with an unlimited, almost an, an unlimited amount of combos out there, it's very likely. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a question I want to kind of pose to all of you. Do you think that tournament support and having more events makes a meta more varied or do you think it makes it so that it is more stale i would probably say more varied not least for the reason that you know if you if you've gone to a tournament and you've won it a lot of people will then say okay well you know i'm just going to run something fun Mm -hmm. and from that just running something fun a lot of people will be surprised with the amazing and ridiculous combos that you can find just while having fun. I think this is also a really interesting point that if people have more events available to them, I think they're more likely to try different things. Whereas if you have one big high level event that you are, you know, really heavily competing to win, then you are more likely to just run one thing that you know works really well. Exactly. Yeah, that that almost ties back into our discussion about personalities and gaming types and if if there are so few events you really feel pressure right to to do well because you're traveling maybe uh that's the only event you can make for the year so you feel pressured to play something that's generally seen as good and that really stifles creativity 100 percent. okay so i think one one more thing we haven't touched up on is that Sometimes as a meta evolves, really niche characters or tools find their way into the meta, even though they're perhaps not uh, universally such strong effects, but because they're, they're used to counter specific, extremely common things. So what are, what are some examples of these? During the, the height of the Spectre meta, my, my attempt at countering it was to, was to go Scum Hunter's and victory points and it involved having lots of very low damage figures well not not very low damage that would be incorrect but relatively low damage figures in favor of being able to run around and get very fast so taking figures like greedo and vinto in that meta were great because they were very fast you could run right into your opponent's back line mm. and vinto and greedo are great tools for picking off things that your opponent doesn't want you to get which in the Spectre meta, it allowed you to pick off kind of the small points that were easier to get, like Chopper and Hera. I mean, I'm, I, admittedly, I don't think it's the greatest example, but it was an example of where the meta kind of forced you to think differently and to use different figures, because using both Greedo and Vinto in the list is sometimes kind of quite unusual. So I've got a really good example, actually, that just came to mind. And this, this one is the interplay during the Spectre Cell meta of Set for Stun. Yes. Mm. Okay, so the, the interplay between the set for stun development and motivation, which eventually kicked set for stun back out of the meta. So everyone started running set for stun for a little while, and it was great. Then all the Spectre Cell players started throwing motivation on to counter the set for stun and other stuns, and suddenly people stopped running set for stun again because it was just going to get removed. And so that that's a... A great example of this kind of arms race, right? Where one one group develops this weapon to use against Spectre Cell, and then those players develop something uh, that sort of nullified that advantage, and then that weapon is now 
out of the meta again because it's irrelevant. Mm. Especially when you when you then consider that the that the finals match between the two specters, none of them had motivation, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was really funny. But yeah, I actually have an example as well, which was one of my all time favorite combos back in the day. But it was in the shadows, which for reference for anyone is a hunter smuggler command card costing one and one in the deck. You use that at the start of the round and then until the end of the round. The hunter or smuggler that's used it cannot be targeted by line of sight from figures who are four or more spaces away. And that in a sniper's meta with Nal Hutta in the mix was brutal. The amount of games I could just, you know, okay, Han's going to stand here in the middle of the map. I'm going to get four points around and you can't shoot me, but I can shoot straight down into your deployment zone. It is such a rough card, which, which no one saw coming. And, I mean, I've spoken about this story several times, but then I almost lost a game in the UK Nationals one time because of someone playing that card against me. But that would probably be my favorite example of those sort of cards, which are specifically created to be anti-meta, but they're just so good just because of that. I mean, if everyone ran in the shadows, you know, you, you, would, probably, you would probably see an increase in the number of Vaders being played. But I don't know if that's a great example for this case, because that's something that... Uh, is unusual that counters something, but has it actually made its way into the meta? Is it now popular? Uh, well, no, because right after that happened, um, the whole sniper meta died um, because of Nell Hutter rotating out and Spectre Cell coming in. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think given enough time, it probably would have grown more because, again, I saw other people playing it as time went on. But right after that, be- because the last time I saw it was the final... UK tournament before Spectre was released. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's obviously gone because what's in the shadows going to do against Spectre Cell? It's just a dead card. I've got a, I've got another interesting example, and that's that's the interplay between spies, IG lists, mm. and Imperial lists. So generally, the stronger IG is uh, in terms of being present at tournaments and being a big part of the meta, the more people I see splash spies, uh, so Claudite or or Mac or, or people playing Ahsoka. I remember Tom played a very heavy spy list for a while. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was the best character of all, Jared. Jared and Jax. That still gives me nightmares. That's, that's good, you know. But the, the point is that spy is only strong if they've got something for you to wipe out with your spy cards, right? The moment the moment you run up against the kind of bruiser Vader riots list or something, you just kind of run screaming as they as they beat you to death because they don't care about their cards and they just run at you anyways. I mean, it's the it's the smart design choice by the creators in a way, isn't it? It's that spies are very capable of dealing with command cards, but their firepower tends to be a little on the limited side, which is what you need, because you, what you really don't want is spies to be able to whip all your command cards out of your hand and then be able to shoot you to death. Right, exactly. That's, that's some good design there, I feel. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, th- I think we can maybe move on a little and talk about the meta in terms of Imperial Assault. So we, we've had definite cycles where we all enjoyed the meta and definite times where we've hated the meta, right? And part of what IACP was born from was this time when everybody hated the meta because the meta was one list. The dark dark times. times. (laughs) (laughs) The dark times. 
so you you know i think i think we can we can start by saying the meta itself is not bad right there there will be things that are very effective and how sort of stimulating provoking and how diverse a game is is determined by you know how many things are viable in the meta and as isaac said whether these things naturally counter each other Mm -hmm. and you only have problems when something is actually stronger than everything else Right. Yeah, I think this is the issue is that usually in a in in a meta for a game, there are a few different lists that are maybe one is stronger in certain situations, another is stronger in other situations, or there is a very small difference in static stats raw power, right? Like if there's a small strength difference. The problem with the Spectre Cell meta was that the Spectre list was so wildly above and above everything else by a huge chunk for, you know, the maps that were in rotation and just significantly stronger. The gap between that list and others was, I think, insurmountable. And that's what, well, not insurmountable, but significant enough that caused so many people to to use it because they wanted to win events. Exactly. And what I also think is is something important to consider is how easy is the list to play? What is the skill level required to pull off that particular combo? Which I also think is something which really controls how people feel about a meta. Because if, if it's some super simple combo that anyone can do, regardless of if you just pick up the game or if you've been playing for five years. I mean, I think in the, in the case of Spectre Sellers, because it was so good at doing what it did well. Exactly. It was such a beat stick. And bearing in mind, you know, moving and attacking is genuinely the basis of Imperial Assault. Right. Yeah, right. So like you, like you say, you know, the, the threshold for being good at what Spectre Cell was good at was very low. Exactly. The bar was not high. Yeah. But the, the thing is, the Spectre Cell list itself, if you're playing against another Spectre Cell player, there is actually plenty of room to show showcase your skill. Absolutely. Right? The problem is that it was so strong that it didn't take much skill to really be competitive against all of the other lists. Exactly. And that's the and that was the big problem with it, because yes, sure, you can say that the skill level is it or the skill ceiling is high, even though the skill floor is low. But what also needs to be considered is well, how much does it stifle creativity? How creative can you really be with Spectre Cell? I think it goes back to the what you find fun in the game, right? Because like Tom mentioned before, uh, like a game like chess, right? Where it plays the same, like you, ha- you, you have the same lists when you play chess, you have the same objectives. So I feel like playing Spectre v Spectre is kind of more like playing a game like chess than it is the game that we 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 play so if you enjoy that if you don't mind that fact that it's less creative or less diverse then you might really really enjoy that that meta but if part of what you really enjoy about imperial assault is the varying tactics i think that's why a lot of people found it very unsatisfying even when you do have something super stifling in the meta um, we can we can start to link this to player types, right? So we we've talked a bit about Spike, who's the tournament player, happy to play whatever is strongest. 
doesn't have any you know real list ties uh, maybe a little bit but is playing to win tournaments so spike probably doesn't care if most of the other lists are specter cell if there is enough skill ceiling that they can still play well and and feel like they won based on their skill then they're they're happy right I think the one of the biggest problems with a stale metagame is when it lasts for a long time. Yeah. So I think I think going back to what you said earlier about metas not being inherently bad, I think that, that that's very true. And the problems come in when one of two things happen. One is it extends for too long. If a meta is lo- is, is is so dominant and so strong that it and it lasts for a long time and nothing comes in to shake out the meta, that, that becomes a problem. And the other is the level of kind of of brokenness if you will how dominant is this list how dominant is this particular style of play because like you said earlier with the, the kind of the era of three lists or era of three meta types of vader and han rangers and and, and uh, the hunters none of them was so brokenly dominant that it killed out any of the others right but, but towards the end of that time there were a lot of people starting to complain that they were tired of playing the the sniper vader whatever you know three three list meta as well exactly and that's the time dependent part of it that's the point where even though that meta in terms of diversity was fine the brokenness was not a problem necessarily the time problem then became bigger as it got longer mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think the the longer any one meta is in place the the less likely it is for people to find breakout lists and combos to keep things interesting mm-hmm. right and and that reduces the enjoyment of all the list builder people, the the Johnnies who like to create new combos. They like to win in creative ways. If they don't feel like there is anything for them to create anymore, then they they no longer enjoy the game. And that's certainly a problem I have as a as a typical Johnny player. That that is my biggest problem with metas. Once there's no room to create anymore, then it kind of runs stale, very stale. Yeah. Yeah. So it's happened a couple of times in Imperial Assault, uh, where where we've had we've had a, a meta kind of every season or so. We've had a couple of instances where the dominant list in the meta was just too strong and overshadowed everything. So this this four by four list, way back in the beginning, which was four sets of royal guards and four officers. Uh, I wasn't actually playing back then. Um, I don't know if any of you were. No, it's unfortunately slightly before my time as well. Okay, I'm probably all glad we missed that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not not only because I didn't want to buy four core sets for however many it took to play that list. Oh my gosh, yeah. But but then more recently, Spectre Cell was so dominant that you know every, everything was Spectre Cell for a while. Mm-hmm. But in in between these uh, extremely kind of stifling metas, there there have been pretty open ones. So as long as they they end and they go away, thing, things will eventually be okay, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's generally how certainly how players who like to experiment the field as, as long as they feel there is an endpoint in sight that's fine we, we'll keep tinkering around the edges trying to find something that will play and will better against whatever the matter is and i think that was certainly the biggest problem with the spectacle matter is that because there was no communication it was this point in the game where its future was uncertain that undefined length of time before we found out what was going to happen there made it particularly stifling mm. right absolutely 
Yeah, and I, I guess we, we didn't touch on what the last player type thinks about metas, uh, Timmy. But I, I think Timmy only cares, you know, whether or not the things they like are strong, right? So unless you had the biggest Royal Guard fan on the planet, <laughs> the 4x4 four, four four meta, they were probably not happy. Mm-hmm. But I, I did know a lot of people who loved the, the Rebels characters, so they, they were all right during the Spectre Cell meta. Right. Yeah, the high prevalence of uh, Team Happiness is definitely something I noticed as well. Which, I mean, is a good thing. It's just a shame it had to come at such a high cost. Is there any kind of... Uh, advice that we could give about in any kind of certain point how to kind of increase your enjoyment of the game at different points in the development of a new meta let's say i I think that kind of metas happen whether you want them to happen or not right and so it it, it's kind of it's inevitable that it's going to happen and it, it probably more comes down to your player type than kind of a way of preparing for metas I think right. your preparation for what a meta is going to be is going to be based on what, how you like to play. I suppose if you're coming in fresh and you kind of want to know, well, what should I do? Well, if you're if you're coming in as a Johnny type, do whatever you like. Experiment. Even if there's a meta, bring something crazy. We've seen lots of new players at, at tournaments coming in with things and looking at them and going, that's never going to do anything, my friend. I'm very sorry. You, you're, <laughs> you're, well, you're well out of the meta here. And then suddenly people are losing to them and you're thinking, how has this happened? We all knew these things were terrible. Well, you know, because experimentation occasionally throws up something cool. Yeah, I think that's definitely what I want uh, listeners to get out of that, is that you don't have to feel pinned in by the meta. If you have to kind of just think about what is fun for you, if winning is the thing that is giving you the most enjoyment, then maybe you have to give a a bit more thought to the meta. But if actually coming up with different lists and trying to test them against things that are strong and coming up with new ways to win is your way to enjoy the game, you don't have to feel like you have to go with what is seen as the meta list at the time. So just kind of think about what it is that you enjoy about the game and don't feel like you have to do something just because it's in the meta. A hundred percent. And I mean, on that note, a lot of the most successful players in the game, you know, they got to the level they did not by just following, you know, the run of the mill meta. A lot of players did and no shade at all. It's amazing that they did that. But some players, they followed their own path. I mean, a great example there would be David. David took Lothcats and stormed worlds with it. I mean, no one saw it coming. He went almost undefeated, I think, in Swiss. And, you know, players will do that. So, you know, even if you do really want to win, there are ways around it without needing to sell your soul or whatever the catchphrase is. Yeah, David taking Lothcats and winning nationals in the Spectre meta. I mean, you go with your heart. That that was actually a pretty pretty good example of metagaming as well because mm-hmm. I basically built to take apart Spectre Cell only. <laughs> I'm not actually sure how good it is still in in the current, you know, wide meta of of everything else coming back with, with Vader, with um box lists, with spies. It, it's a very different game than when when you were only fighting seven activation Spectre cells all day. Yeah, but I think that's that's the good way to do metagaming, though, is that see what you're going to enjoy 
working in the meta. So if you really enjoy kind of analyzing the different lists and coming up with your own that's going to work against them, you know, feel empowered to do so. I think that yeah. that season with you at the Lost Cats, uh, the, the season where you then went into Nationals Day, that was, I think I was playing a very similar game to you of building a list that was designed pretty much to kill Spectre. And I, I took a regional with my version, which was the Scum Hunter VP list, Greedo and Vinto. And then we played each other in the finals of another regional that season. And you beat me with your Lothcats list. I, I actually didn't play Lothcats against you in oh. that final. I was playing a, oh. a list very similar to you, except I think I had, was it Hondo instead of Vinto and a plus one? That, that, was, that was the last game where I played a mid, mid-range Scum Hunters VP without Lothcats. And it was because I, I won against you that I decided to play nothing but Lothcats for the rest of the year. What? <laughs> Oh, Tom, listen, oh, he's, giving you direct, he's giving you direct credit for his Lothcats win. <laughs> it was exactly that effect Isaac uh, mentioned earlier, where, you know, once once you've won a big event, you feel free to open up and play whatever you want. Exactly. And, and, and there are so many examples of, of this exact same thing happening. You got Kenny with his box, you got David with the Lothcats, you got me with the Rangers, and there are just so many examples of this out there that you you can really you can win with okay almost almost don't take Biv and expect to win in a, with outside ICP but you can build almost any list and if you really learn it well enough and play the meta game rather than the actual game you can win again if that is fun for you, hmm. you know. exactly if that appeals to you more than than going along the regular meta then that is an option you don't have to go full timmy and just say well i'm just gonna go rankos you know you, you don't have to do that there is a middle ground that you can do and still win all right is there anything else that we want to talk about yeah so a couple more things i guess maybe just just to to cap it off we can go ahead and and tell you all that this will probably be almost a two-part episode um, in which we covered the meta and definitions and general discussion in this episode. And we'll actually have another episode where we talk a little bit more about regional metagame in Imperial Assaults and invite a couple of guest speakers on. Surprise! For this episode, though, I would like to finish about a discussion, just a quick discussion about metas and IACP. So IACP is bringing a lot of new waves, new material into the game at a regular interval, right? Which keeps the meta very fresh. It's really hard to figure out what is actually the best list or, or set of lists. But some, some questions that, that we would like IACP steering committee folks to keep in their minds is that what is, what is the long-term goal? So I, I know it's easy to say that you want to reach a point where everything in the game is is viable. And that's that's really hard for one. But also, as we touched upon, metas, even very diverse ones, if they are around long enough, are still not that great. The the question is that is is Imperial Assault actually a diverse enough game 
that that period of time is so long we will all be dead or something before <laughs> we get tired of that matter. I think it's a really interesting question because if if you do have kind of an end point envisaged the game where you where you are thinking that it's all over, my, my personal opinion is that that's that's almost not really what the game wants. I, th- I think you do want that, con- that changing. I don't think it has to be balanced for it to yeah, be a good fun ongoing game. It's almost like you could you could turn around at the very you know you you reach your kind of vague end state where most things are viable and all that kind of thing, but then you just start messing with it and you drop you drop you drop the point of something here or you add a point there to just mess around and you know trying to it almost opens up the possibility of doing like seasonal rules or something. Yeah, so this this is exactly where uh, X Wing went, right? So it was, so we had we had X Wing two and all, all of this, but there are a huge number of ships, and supposedly there they were fairly balanced for a while. I don't follow X Wing that that closely. I don't remember X Wing being like that. <laughs> I, I had so we we played uh, UK Team Championships a couple of times, and it was really fun when two first came out. I, I felt like all the ships were usable, at least. But then they started almost doing cycles already with X-Wing. And they they typically do set rotations for collectible card games, not just FFG, but a lot of other game companies as well. And it, it's almost the the argument between whether or not you want something that's a rotational competitive game like a ccg or if you want to just come out with content forever or at least until you're done trying to uh, string your player base along or or get money from them or whatever almost like an lcg model right where you you pretty much need to buy whatever the the latest set is or you need to be playing whatever the latest units are and that just continues forever yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which are with which are both great points. I think I'll just uh yeah, just just uh, note them as I am my committee. Um and that is something which is very interesting about about our work whenever we're designing a season is that so we've brought on some some new members to the team recently. Um so we're currently a big team rather than a small team, which means that everyone has a different idea of how they want the game to go. Um, I've been very busy these last couple of months, so I, I don't know the full in and out of what everyone is, th- is thinking. Um, but from what I've gathered, the whole um, uh, regional thing is, as in, you know, regional rotations, is something which most of us aren't a huge fan of. But I would also say that we are actually developing that in a certain way with the way we're delivering, delivering our seasons. You know, it, it comes, the season comes in, and if it doesn't get approved, then it gets kicked out. You know, any changes which are either too powerful or too weak, you know, they're not made. Um, but definitely one thing which does frustrate me a little bit about the IACP, um, and, and I, I've been guilty been guilty of doing, doing this as well, is the micromanaging. Is if you let a card be powerful for long enough, people will find a way around it. But it's this constant every couple of weeks just, okay, well... It, we've seen a five percent increase in this one figure being in Boba Fett being used instead of the ISB. So let's nerf Boba. Which, like, yeah, I do think Boba needs a minor, minor, minor nerf. But you know, I, I don't think we should be constantly, basically, as 
as developers of content, it's not our job to micromanage what people are running. It's our job to make sure that nothing is spec to cell level of bad mm-hmm. and then let the, let the game create itself. Because just like we spoke about, a meta can either go draw itself into a rut, in which case the developers have to step in and fix it, or it can develop itself into something we never even saw coming. Right. Yeah. I think there's definitely, for timing, there's a too short as well as too long, right, for 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 these kind of seasonal changes. Uh, obviously, if we leave a meta too long, it becomes stale and boring. But also, if you make changes too quickly, you never get kind of these interesting developments and evolutions in the meta that could be very interesting to the game. Uh, so you also want to leave time with those changes in place to see what evolves, see what comes out of it without, like you said, the designers kind of putting their fingers in it, kind of see what the player base does with it. Exactly, which is why I believe that. Um, and you guys can let me know if you if you don't think so, but I think that the current schedule of one new season every five months seems like a pretty happy medium. Obviously, this is a little bit difficult to determine now with the state the world is in at the moment. Very few people are able to go out and get games in, which means that the meta is is effectively on hold. The only games still being played are either between family members at home or online, which, you know, that, that's not the same as tournaments. So on, oddly enough, I actually think the testing league is a is almost the the ideal sort of evolving meta that that we want not not because everything is balanced we know not everything in the testing league is balanced right there will be broken (laughs) stuff and there already have been many broken things that i've raged about oh yeah (laughs) But, but the the thing is there, there are two things that make testing league interesting and the first is that there's all this new stuff to play around with but the second, maybe more important one, is that to play in the testing league, you actually have to use stuff from the new, uh, the new wave as it is, right? So you, you, you are almost imposing a soft rotation in which some small percentage of your list must be new things. And that, that changes things quite a bit. Exactly. I think the interesting thing that you've got with the ICP testing league as well is that you're basically you, you've taken a step of develop, game development that is normally private and is not kind of part of the wider group and the, the wider game and in a way the meta game that, that that testing part is actually not at least that initial testing part is normally not public and by making it public it's actually quite interesting because and this is this is a, obviously a very personal kind of thing. But I struggle with the idea of the testing league because I don't like the idea of playing against broken things. And that's what, that's what the testing league is there to kind of get out. And the problem is, I think, from my point of view, is because, because the testing league normally is, as I say, private and those broken things are gone. Because the, the ISCP testing cycle is replaced instantly by another testing cycle of new content, there's no, there's no kind of time... That, that, that period of time where the kind of the non-broken version where everything can be tried and tested and old lists and new lists has come in and play and we can see where kind of everything all sits for me that step doesn't exist I think I, th- I find that a little bit I find that a little bit of a struggle 
Yeah, I think at the moment IACP really appeals to people that want to try out new and crazy things and don't mind about the brokenness. But I think at the moment there is this kind of gap in people that want to do kind of high level competitive balanced play. And that, that there is a bit of a gap there that we haven't quite got that because there there is that this move towards the IACP official, but uh who is playing that, how many people are going to be playing that versus the testing league if there isn't that time that's kind of dedicated to, okay, now this point in time is just IACP official and we're not opening a new testing league until X number of months. Otherwise, you're not going to get people playing your IACP official because there's you're competing with the testing league, right? Yeah, it's almost like you've got two leagues that are competing. That's actually a really good way of putting it, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, uh, th- that is a really nice point of way of putting it. Um, and I think on top of that, we also have to keep in mind because the problem is, I, I completely agree, and I do think that that would be an amazing idea to implement a non-testing league period where just everything is approved. The problem is that the longer you do that, the longer you go, you go between new releases. Because remember, during the testing league, that's when we fine tune any things which really have to be changed. We don't add any content. You know, we don't come halfway through the testing league saying, okay, surprise, now you've got Baby Yoda to play with, you know, which means that if you ha- if you extend that extra, that extra time too much, then suddenly you're looking at maybe, I don't know, eight, nine months between releases. And that for a lot of people would not be enough to keep them engaged with the game. So it's a fine balance, but I do definitely agree that there should be a move towards that element of it, of it as well. Yeah, I think this, there is a very, we're balancing on a knife's edge. Yeah. And I think what is important is basically how we move forward with organized play. Uh, is Do we have enough events to keep people interested and enough events of the type that people are going to want to play? So for players like Tom, for example, if there aren't any IACP uh, approved uh, tournaments, that's not going to be as interesting to them. Uh, whereas the people that uh, are happily doing the testing league, there's tons of tournaments that they can get involved in and play loads of games in the testing league. But for those uh, you know players that that doesn't appeal to, there's not so many events for you to get involved in. Yeah, I think the ICP, the, mul- the multiple formats problem, and also, and I totally understand not wanting to be the dictators saying, right, you must play the game this way when you do a tournament. It does fracture your player base a bit, having multiple possible formats for tournaments. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is completely true. And it almost, I, I always feel like your you're hardcore gamers who love doing the, the testing league and stuff. I'm not sure what what additional they're getting out of being able to take those lists to tournaments. They're not getting from doing the testing league already. Yeah, and you probably don't need to accommodate them with your idea of a tournament. If you can just go with, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't actually know necessarily know the lingo. The approved version is what is tournament legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. I agree. Yeah, no, I, I mean that's fair. Um, the, the thing is, the way we're doing it currently is that the host can just decide whether they want to do playtest or approved, because I mean the thing is, because I've seen it as a very stark fifty-fifty um, from what I've seen. Whenever we have a playtest tournament, there are a bunch of people who come up to me saying. 
oh, well, I don't think this is completely balanced, so this is, feels pretty silly. And if it's a, an approved tournament, then I've had the exact same number of people come up to me and say, oh, but I want you to play with Dengar, I want you to play with Royal Guards. And, you know, both of those points are completely valid, so it, it's difficult to discount to just discount one of them, which I don't think we should do. I think what Tom is trying to say, though, is that the people that are saying, oh, I wanted to play with Dengar, they have a format for that, which is the testing league, versus the players who say, oh, it's not balanced, they don't have a forum to play a balanced version. That's true. And and you, you could always say that the people that want to play with the, the very new stuff will get to play them in a tournament later on when they're approved and balanced as well right it's not not likely that you'll just delete dengar entirely but he he just won't be as as good as maybe when they wanted to play him Mm -hmm. and i am not saying that there is an easy solution here like i said it it is very tricky problem to solve absolutely yeah it's it's also a player base uh size absolutely yeah Exactly, because we do really need to accommodate both groups, because with only half the group, that's not, you know, the the I community is short and sweet, you know, we're small, but we're tight, and everyone knows each other, and everyone loves each other. And, you know, if if you limit tournaments to just one of the groups, that's not sustainable. Alrighty, well, we will be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully... Um, the wait won't be as long as it was this episode. I think most of our schedules have opened up a little bit, so we can get on recording more frequently. Um, but yeah, so the next episode we will be going into further detail about about this exact topic, but then expanding it, we're going to elaborate even more on the ICP, and we are also going to discuss the different types of regional meta. You know, what is the British regional? What is the American regional? What's the Central European regional? what's the Canadian regional, and even what's the Australian regional. There are a bunch of different regions to be considered. So we're going to bring on some more guest stars, and I think it's going to be a blast. Does anyone have any parting words before we say goodbye? Uh, we'll, we'll be streaming and doing commentary again on another tournament in a couple of weeks. Yeah, Make sure you join us when we are streaming and doing commentary at the IACP tournament at the start of May. Um, and we also did just release a new hit single, Royal Guard Champion, woo, woo. Um, built on notes. Come check us out. Royal Guard Champion. And I'm your host, Jessica, telling you to follow your heart when it comes to your metagaming. That's it. That is it. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Good night.